Okay, we're four Sundays after Pentecost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Grant that by your word we may again and again be convicted of our many sins, but also fervently grasp anew the comfort of your spirit and of faith, in order that we may be justified in your Son and be saved through him, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Just a word or two about the scheduling. Uh, we're back to the Bible after all of the fun and game, all of the uh, fun of the voter stuff. So it's a good place to be. I'll be leading this this week and next week. We're going to try to get through chapter three of First Peter. Uh, at that point, Pastor Bruzik will be back for the 16th of July. We'll give the vicar a run at things the week after that. And then we'll see where we are at that point. Uh, but hopefully we can finish up First uh, Peter by the end of the summer, if not sooner. So and I think this started about a year or so ago. So hopefully we can wrap up five chapters in a year. We'll see. Uh, so that's kind of the game plan. If you remember, the, our last, the last time we met, uh, Dr. Just was here. And we got through the bit on wives and husbands in the first part of chapter 3, up through about 3, verse 7. And so 3, verse 8 kind of picks this up and leads on to the next thing. I'm going to start at 3, verse 8. You'll notice, does, does everyone have a copy of the handout? Okay. This is just kind of a few random thoughts to get us through. We'll see if we can get through about, about verse 17 this week and then finish up the chapter next week. The end of chapter three has some pretty heavy stuff about Jesus preaching to spirits in prison and baptism and Noah and some really fun, crazy stuff. So come back next week for that. And if there's any bit of this left at that, that point, we'll pick it up there. But the plan is to try to do at least three through 12 and then get a good chunk of the way towards 17 under, under our belts. So if, we, if you remember for the last chapter or so, we've been talking about uh, submission. We've got submit to the, hum to the authorities uh, in 2.13. Sub slaves, submit to your masters, 2.18. Wives, be, uh, submit to your husbands in first part of 3. And then you've got that bit about Christ in there at the end of chapter 2. And so 3 verse 8 starts to wrap all of this up put it all together, why have we been talking about submitting to each other for a, a whole chapter here? And if you look at the sheet, you'll see lots and lots of questions. I tend to think in terms of questions. Uh, one of my professors, the way he would teach is, you know, when you, when you have a text uh, doing exegesis or doing Bible study is asking questions of the text and then seeing what, what the answers are. Uh, it takes a while to kind of figure out what are the right questions to ask uh, the Bible doesn't have answers to all the questions you'd like to know. But as you get into the text, you learn to see kind of what, what questions are the authors answering, uh, and then what questions are drawn out of the text, what questions are prompted by the text. And so you see lots of questions. We might get some answers. We might not. But if you think about it, 
you know, writing, the, writing a letter at this time is a little different than kind of shooting off an email today. It was a long, drawn-out process. You had to hire usually a, some sort of a scribe or amanuensis to write things down. It was expensive to pay for the paper and the ink and somebody to take it. So if you're going to write something, you want to make sure it's something important. And so why does Peter you know, write about the things he does here? If he's got you know, five chapters to talk, you know, why are these the important things? Why are these the things that he draws out? Just kind of think about that. You know, why, why are these the, the main things he hits upon? Uh, just to review again, we're, we've been taking the view that this is probably a baptismal address uh, given to the people who are, have just been brought into the church. They've probably spent maybe up to three years uh, learning, learning the faith, learning the creed, the Lord's Prayer, and they've just been brought into the church. So you've got the newly baptized there, but you've got the people who have been in the church as well. And this is kind of bringing everybody together, speaking both to the new and the experienced Christians at the same time. And we've been talking here for about a chapter about submission to human authorities, servants and masters, wives and husbands. And we're going to get, you know, what's the point of all this? So let's take a quick read now from starting at verse 8. And I'll read up through verse 12. This is kind of the first subsection here. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we start out here, you know, the NIV gives finally, which is a bit weak. Uh, we have here the word telos, which is the goal, the end. You know, what's, what's the purpose of all of this? And then uh, all of this the, would be all this talk of submission. And then the reason is uh, to bring together the people of God. And then you've got five descriptions of what it looks like when this happens. What, ha what does it look like when you know, wives and husbands love each other, when slaves submit to their masters, when people are obedient to the authorities? What does it look like? You've got five descriptions here. The first, uh, I think the NIV gives harmoniously, uh, be in, be in, live in harmony with one another. You see the Greek there in parentheses, homophrones. Uh, the end of that, the phron root has to do with thinking. How do you think? And homo means, you know, the same. So within the people of God, there's the same mind about things. Uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, everybody thinks identically about every single little thing in life. But about, you know, we have the mind of Christ. We all think together. We all kind of reason together. And then the last word ties that back in. But so we have kind of the same mind about things. Uh, the second word, uh, be sympathetic, I think, is what it says in English, which is just a, a, a converting of the, the Greek into English. It's sympathes here. Uh, sim meaning together. And then patho can either be uh, suffering or feeling, it's the same word, 
And so to be sympathetic with someone involves kind of feeling together, but even the idea of suffering together with them. So if one person in the church suffers, you all suffer with them. You know, if somebody is, has lost their job, if somebody's in, in the hospital, if somebody is suffering for any reason, you suffer along with them. It's all, all together here. Loving as brothers, in Greek, Philadelphoi. Uh, the idea that we're all part of the same family. And so, again, you share each other's hurts, you share each other's thoughts, you share each other's feelings. We're all kind of all in this together. We're all brought together by Christ, under Christ, and then we love each other as brothers, as a family. Uh, compassionate, ois splanknoi. Uh, you've probably heard maybe some dis description of this before, but your splankna are your guts, your intestines. This word can even be used in medical terminology to refer to having healthy intestines. It's not exactly what's going on here. Splanknizomai usually refers to when you, when you see someone in pain or hurting and you just get that gut-wrenching pain, you actually have kind of a visceral reaction to it. That's the idea here, is that you know, when you see someone within the body of Christ especially, is kind of what's in view here, and you actually hurt and feel along with them. That kind of goes along with sympathies, loving each other, thinking together. And then the, the last bit, uh, typonophrones, I think it's just tra translated as humility. But you see that frone bit at the end, which is the same as we had with homophrones. And the first bit, uh, that root has to do with humility or submitting yourself. So that your thoughts are humble. You're not thinking of yourself first, but you're thinking of, of the others in, in the body first. And so that kind of wraps this all together. The reason for loving each other in this way is so that you know, you're thinking the same, you're feeling the same, you're suffering together. What affects one of us affects all of us. It's not kind of this individualism, I'm going to go out there and, and be a Christian on my own, but this is what the church looks like. And this, this, is what, this is what thing, kind of the end result of all of this. And so these are kind of the, the broad, uh, kind of abstract principles. This is what it actually looks like in real life. Uh, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you recall that you might inherit a blessing. So because... You know, you love and you care for each other this way. If you encounter evil or I think it's just, yeah, bad, kakos. If something bad happens, if someone treats you badly, obviously the, the instant kind of knee-jerk reaction is to give them back at least as bad as you got. And, you know, the first thing happens when, when somebody insults you is you, you, come, you have a good comeback for it and go back and forth that way. But of course, that's not what things look like in the church. Uh, you probably remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. That's the Matthew 5 bit. And then if you look at Christ himself when he was insulted, 
You know, he did, he could have, Jesus could have had the ultimate comeback, not only with words, but with actions. But that wasn't the way that he reacted when he was insulted and, and even physically assaulted. There's an interesting quote in the, uh, in the bulletin this week next to the creed, if you get a chance to read that, uh, from one of the Desert Fathers about kind of being insulted and what to do. I'll leave you to read that on your own, but it kind of fits in here as well. Uh, from Abba Agathon. And so this is the way things look in the body of Christ. Instead of speaking insults when you're insulted, instead of coming back with something just as clever and just as mean, you come back with a word of blessing. And of course, that's not, that's not a normal reaction. The only reason we act that way is that we have then received a blessing as an inheritance. That's the last part of the verse. Uh, for for you, thus you were called out in order that you might inherit a blessing. So the Lord has blessed us. He has spoken his words of blessing to us. Even though you know, we were the ones insulting him, you go back to Peter's sermon at Pentecost, we are the ones who are responsible for his crucifixion and all the pain that went along with that. But still he speaks a word of blessing. You know, on the cross he forgave those who crucified them, which includes us as well. And so then we have received that word of blessing, and then that is what we speak. Uh, imagine, you know, the next, the next time somebody has something nasty to say to you, you know, a word of blessing. It's not, it's not what kind of comes naturally for us, but it's what we've received. And so that's what comes through us as well. Then kind of what follows next is a long quote here from the Psalms, Psalm 34. And this is pretty much, you know, it's a direct quote that follows for a couple of verses here. Uh, it's Psalm 34, verses 13 to 17. And it begins, you know, the one who wishes to love life and to see good days which is an interesting way of kind of introducing this. Is, this. is this what you wish? You know, if you could have one wish, is this it? To love life and to see good days. You know, what, what would qualify as a good day for you? Well, what would a good day be like? Yeah. Sure, to, to actually, you know, enjoy, get up and look forward to going to work and, you know, have, have something to do that is pleasing to you, that God has prepared you to do, that he's given you the talents to do and given you the enjoyment of. Now, what, is it, what does a good day look like? If you want to have a good day, well, if you want to have a good day, this is what, this is what happens. And in here, at this point, you know, the English translation is a bit harsh. He must keep his tongue from evil. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. And really, you know, the Greek isn't that harsh. It's just uh, kind of, th this is what it would look like. You know, if you, if, you wanted to, if you want to have good days, if you want to have a good, if you want to be able to love and enjoy your life, then this, is, this would be a good thing to do. Keep your tongue from evil 
and your lips from speaking deceit. Avoid evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's it. Now, of course, watch your lips and your tongue. You can see James for more of that. We're not going to read that at this point, but there's a lot there about controlling your tongue, controlling your lips, watching what happens there. So that, I think this is the connection that Peter is making with the speaking uh, that we had in verse 9. Speaking speaking words of blessing instead of returning the insults and the bad speech that we hear all the time. The second part, avoid evil and do good. You know, sounds, sounds pretty simple. But, you know, usually our problem isn't you know, knowing what's good or bad. It's, you know, we, we know what's wrong, we know what's right. Uh, and usually, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty good at kind of justifying our excuses for doing what's wrong. We've got comfortable with uh, usually the, the few sins that we can kind of explain away. It's not usually a matter of knowing what's evil and what's good, but, you know, actually avoiding evil and doing good. And so, you know, it's not, it's not that complicated. You know, we, have, we have the ten words, we know what's good, we know what's evil. But then it actually comes down to doing it. And again, you know, these aren't words speaking, spoken to you to, um, you're not on your own in this. You know, these are words spoken to the people who have been baptized, who have been kind of brought, have been brought into the church, have been made a part of this community. So it's, it's a together thing to be able to think together, to suffer together, and to work together at this. And so, no, you're not on your own here, but it's not that complicated either. Avoid evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Now, peace here is a heavily loaded word. This, of course, is it's, tra- it's translating the Hebrew. So, you know, when, whenever you you're reading uh, New Testament stuff, especially when they're when they're trans when they're bringing in Old Testament texts, it helps to kind of think about what's going on here in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament word here for peace is shalom. It's a word that can be used as a greeting, uh, peace be with you, that sort of thing. That it means more than just, you know, two people aren't fighting. It's not that simplistic view of peace. But it has to do with the, the reconciliation, the good, you know, if you use the word relationship between people, that restored peace, harmony. It even has to do with kind of health and well-being. You can have shalom in your bones if you're doing well and your body is, is living well. And so it has, it's a really heavily loaded term. There's a lot packed into there about you know, peace. And you hear the word peace a lot coming through in the liturgy especially. Uh, in the Gloria, where we talk about the Lord bringing peace, peace on earth, the song of the angels comes in there. Uh, peace in the Lord's Supper especially, peace be with you, and then departing in peace, and then again uh, the, the canticle, Lord, now let your servant go in peace. In the Lord's Supper, we have that, that renewed, that restored, that healthy relationship with the Lord again through the forgiveness we have there. 
It's what Jesus came to do is to make peace between us and God. That happened you know, through the incarnation where man and God were joined together in one person. That reconciliation started there, continued through his baptism, and then on the cross and the resurrection. So what Jesus came to do is bring peace, and that's what we're given, and uh, that's what comes through here, to seek, seek peace. Seek the Lord is another way you could just say that. Beg your pardon? Peace be with you, yep. The, uh, the, the, even the, you know, the common way of saying hello in, uh, in Arabic is salam alaikum, peace be with you. And so you, know, you, you hear that, that comes through uh, in Islam as well, the, the prophet, peace be upon him. You know, that, that word is used, in, used there as well as that sort of a root. Uh, but you know, that, that's what the Lord does, is he gives us peace, which begins between us and God. We have that, that separation caused by sin, but then we receive that restoration through what Jesus did. And then the peace that we have with God then is, extends from us to our neighbors. And we have peace then within the community because we have, the, have peace with God. And you see that... When, in places where you actually have the peace of the Lord shared with each other, that greeting of peace. I think usually here it's part of the Monday Thursday service where the peace is actually spread physically and, and verbally throughout the, throughout the congregation. And so it, does, it isn't just kind of a me and Jesus thing. When you're up at the, the rail, it's not just kind of the vertical, but you know everybody gathered around is gathered in peace. We receive that forgiveness and it goes on from us out to everybody else who's gathered. And so, you know, you have here, seek peace and then pursue it. Uh, run after it uh, is another way. In, you know, in Hebrew, it's radaf. It's, you know, you could run after, after someone, you know, physically. This isn't just kind of sit there and think about it. But, you know, go after peace. Don't, you know, if there's some sort of a breach of peace in the community, if, there, if that peace if that forgiveness has somehow been stopped, don't just kind of sit there and hope that eventually things will get better, but run after it. Go out there, kind of take the first step in restoring the peace in the community. Uh, again, this is, there's lots of ties here with the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost as though you know, Peter's got this in the back of his mind when Jesus says, you know, if there's something between you and your brother, leave your gift at the altar, go make peace with him, and then uh, come together before the Lord. And so, you know, if, there's, if the peace has been breached somewhere in the church, don't just kind of sit there, wait for somebody to come and apologize to you and make up, but go out there. You've received peace. You know, you're, you're there to speak a word of blessing, and so kind of run after it, pursue it. Don't just kind of sit around and wait for the next, next thing. And then, kind of what happens next, uh, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears uh, are unto those who, who pray to him, who cry out to him, but the face of the Lord is against those who are doing bad, who are doing evil. So you've got, and of three things, you've got the eyes of the Lord, the ears of the Lord, and the face of the Lord, bringing to this, this whole picture together. 
And it begins with the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Is that a good thing or a bad thing if the eyes of the Lord are on you? <laughs> well, it could depend. You know, think about it, you know, do you like, do you like it when your boss is looking at you or your, your teacher, or your parents? You know, in a bad way, you know, if you're, if you're doing something you shouldn't and your parents are looking at you, then that, that, and that, that's something that can make you nervous and something you'd want to avoid. But imagine kind of you're out on the playground playing and then there's mom sitting off there t keeping your eye on you and you, know, you look over at her and you know that you're safe, you know that things are, are okay. She says it's a comforting thing at that point. And so the eyes of the Lord on you can actually be a good thing. You know, he's looking at you, he knows what you need, he sees everything you're going through, and he's ready there, then the next thing to happen to answer your prayers so that you know, you know that he's there, you know he's looking at you, you know his ears are ready then to hear whatever you have to say to him. Again, you know, this is the, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Well, how do you get righteous? The Lord is the one who makes you righteous. These are words spoken to the baptized. You've been made righteous, declared righteous. And so his eyes are on you. His ears are ready to hear, hear your prayers. And, you know, you've got the face of the Lord. Uh, the face of the Lord, the, the, the time the, the Israelites would have heard the words about the face of the Lord most often would have been the ironic benediction. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Those, those words would, were spoken every day after the sacrifice were, was made. You know, the, the priest would offer on the altar of, uh, outside of the tabernacle, outside of the uh, holy place in the Holy of Holies, there was that bronze altar for burnt sacrifice. The priest would go there every day, offer lamb, grain, incense, enter the holy place, offer more incense in there, offer prayers for the people. Uh, all the time, the Levitical choir would be out there singing, and then the priest would come back outside, lift up his hands, and bless the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to, the, to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And so because of what the Lord had done for the people through the sacrifice and then for us through the Lord's Supper, we have that, that blessing that the Lord is looking upon us with favor, he's smiling upon us, and we have peace with him. Now the flip side of that is the glare, you know, not looking happy at those who do bad. And those of you who are parents or teachers, you probably have the look down by now. <laughs> I still need to practice a bit, but you know, when, when all you have to do is look at your kids and you know, they know something's wrong, and that's kind of the picture we have here, the face of the Lord being against uh, those who do evil. And so, you know, you've got, it's not mentioned here, but kind of in their mind would be the one side of things, the Lord smiling upon you, giving you peace because of what he has done for you. Uh, but then when you kind of reject and you go after evil, then, you know, you get the flip side, you get the law there with the Lord not looking kindly on you. And so this is kind of what things look like in the church then. Uh, because of, of what, we, what we've received, what we've been made, and then what, what it looks like as we are kind of thinking together, suffering together, feeling together, speaking you know, good words, going together after peace, 
because of all these blessings that we've received. And, you know, we've got the flip side at the very end. Any kind of questions or comments or observations up, up to this point, up to verse 12? Right. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, uh, she's talking about Luke chapter 1, when uh, Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist, he's offering the incense in the holy place. He sees the angel, and he, uh, he's struck dumb because he doesn't believe that this can happen. He comes out, and everybody's confused because they're waiting for the blessing, and it doesn't happen. So the book of Luke begins with a priest who can't speak a blessing. But then what's interesting is if you look at the very end of Luke in chapter 24, uh, you have verse 50. This is uh, talking about Jesus. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. So again, you've got, you've got the book of Luke kind of bookended there. It starts with a priest who can't speak a blessing. Then you have Jesus, our great high priest, who lifts up his hands and gives a blessing. Uh, as he ascends into heaven, into the sanctuary again. And so that kind of ties the whole book of Luke together. And so you've got that blessing there, which began in the Old Testament in uh, a beginning in, uh, during the time of the wandering, where that's given on Mount Sinai, as this is the way that the Lord will bless his people, put his name on them. That continues through the Old Testament into the New Testament and is, is part of, of what, we, what we receive every week in the divine service, that blessing of peace which comes through the name of the Lord. Any, anything else there in, in chapter 3, 8 to 12? Okay, well then we'll, we'll press, press, a, press ahead then, do a little bit more. Uh, all of a sudden, we get to talking about suffering. So back in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set, ap set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then comes the bit about Christ. So, uh, you know, again, this is, this is kind of weak language here. If you're eager to do good, eager is, is a bit weak. Uh, the word here is zealous, a zelotai, being zealous for good. You know, not just kind of hoping for good. Again, this kind of goes along with seeking peace and pursuing it. It's an active thing, being zealous for being good. This is the same word used to refer to like Simon the Zealot, who was kind of zealous for the overthrow of the Roman government. You know, is this, is this the thing that you are the most zealous for is doing good. Uh, I think zealot has become, has kind of a bad connotation nowadays. A religious zealot is not something you'd like to be called. 
because usually it has that idea of kind of being totally focused on that thing, being kind of emotionally set on something without even thinking. But, you know, that's what we're called to be, is zealous for doing good, something that kind of totally consumes you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Paul started out kind of being the zealous persecutor of the church, but then the Lord took that that zeal, that energy, and that enthusiasm and turned it around into into uh, making Paul into apostle and an evangelist. And so, you know, if if you are zealous for being good, here is is the idea: Who is going to harm you? Who is going to do bad for you? Uh, it's hard to tell just by that question. Is this a rhetorical question? Is Peter saying, well, nobody's going to persecute you if, you if you're doing good? But then the next verse, it talks about suffering on account of righteousness. So this is kind of a question I want you to have in the back of your mind as we're going through this. Is, does this still happen today, at least here and now? Does this happen to us? Do people actually mistreat you for doing good? I'm not sure. I'm, I really don't have kind of a good answer for that. Uh, I can say, personally, I don't think that I have suffered for doing good. You know, I've never, kind of, I've never been thrown in jail. I've never been beat up. I haven't missed a meal or lost a job or anything like that for doing good. Uh, we have a pretty good sense of kind of civic righteousness, if you want to call that. Uh, and it's, it's hard for me to say that you know, whether, whether this still happens, if we can count, you know, people glaring at you or, you know, the, the odd, odd word here and there is actually, you know, suffering and being mistreated. Shows what? Oh, sure. Yeah, th there, are, there are definitely, you know, countries where it's, it's illegal. You can be, have any, any sort of bad things happening to you uh, if, if you actually are a Christian and or proclaiming the gospel, even owning a Bible, that sort of thing. And, you know, the people being spoken to here in First Peter likely had some, some sort of things like that happening with them. You've got the uh, older Christians there who may have experienced some of this. You've got the newer Christians there who may have experienced this already, but Peter is saying, you know, get ready for this. This, is, this might be something that you have to, have to deal with. But honestly, I'm not sure if that's something that applies as directly to us, us at this point or not. But he says, you know, if, if you suffer on account of righteousness, you are blessed. Uh, this is makarios, the word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. This sounds an awful lot like Matthew 5.10. You know, blessed are you when people persecute you for the sake of righteousness. So again, I think, you know, Peter kind of has a sermon on the mount here in the back of his head, and these things are kind of feeding through. And so blessed here, meaning kind of happy, fortunate, it's not the same word as an actual blessing, but, you know, this is a good thing if you suffer. And, you know, do not fear their, the Greek word here is just fear. It's hard to translate, do not fear their fear. And if you look back, he's quoting Isaiah 8 here. And, you know, the way that I read Isaiah 8 would be, kind of in line with the NIV here, do not fear what they fear. So, you know, as a, as a Christian, what we, what we love is different, what we fear is different too. Uh, do not fear kind of losing control, losing power, losing the, the things that would drive, 
people to fight against what is good. So we had, I think, maybe five or six weeks ago, uh, Pastor Bruzik brought in a quote by Dr. Nagel about fear, saying fear is just kind of self-interest. The reason we're afraid of things is we're, we're afraid of what we might lose, what might happen to us. It's all kind of turned inward on yourself. And so, you know, as a Christian, we're not fearing anymore the normal things that people fear, losing, uh, losing our wealth, losing our standing, losing our health. Those sort of things are not our fears, but uh, we fear other things. We fear losing what the Lord has given us, maybe would be another way of putting it. But do not fear, but uh, sanctify, I think NIV has set apart, Christ in your heart as Lord. And to really understand what's going on here, uh, I think we need, we need to look back at Isaiah 8. Because often when the New Testament writers quote an Old Testament verse, they'll, they'll give maybe a part of a verse or a short section, and really what they have in mind is the whole kind of passage and the context of it. There isn't always time or, and space for them to give really lengthy quotations. But if you look at Isaiah 8, Yeah, that, that, is, that is Proverbs. So it's, it, and uh, we get that fear of the Lord here as well in Isaiah 8. Uh, so Isaiah 8, uh, what Peter quotes is the last bit of verse 12. Uh, do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy, which is kind of the sanctify the Lord part paraphrased in Luke. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But, but for both of the houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble. And then more, more along those lines. So instead of fearing for yourself and fearing for your own life, what we have here is the fear of the Lord. And uh, fearing the Lord, regarding him as holy, uh, he is the one uh, to dread. And he will be your sanctuary. Again, here we've got this happening in your heart. Your heart has to do not just with your emotions, but your thoughts. So if the Lord is in your heart, if the Lord is holy there, that means that other thoughts, other feelings, other unholy things are not there as well. So the, the connection here kind of brings a ties in along with what we had up in verse 8 about your thoughts and your feelings being uh, the mind of Christ, but also for other people in the community, and no longer thinking mainly about yourself. So that's what's going on in your heart. You have Christ as Lord there, and so the, the evil thoughts, the, the things that you're supposed to avoid are not there as well, because the Lord is there. He, has, he is providing a sanctuary for you, and so uh, you don't have the same sort of, of thoughts going on anymore. Your heart, in your heart, Christ is Lord, and there's no room for yourself as Lord there anymore either. Uh, there's, there's a lot to say about the end of 15 and 16, so I don't really want to get into that a whole lot now about uh, giving, a, giving an answer to those who, uh, who ask you for a reason. There, there's a lot of stuff I want to kind of get into that now, which really isn't a whole lot of time at this point. So... Um, I'll just see if there's any more questions. Uh.
up, up to that point, up to the first half of verse, verse 15? Anything else that you've kind of thought of? And yes? Right. Sure. Yeah, and there is kind of that, you know, there are social factors, there are, you know, if you're, if you're an academic and you actually, you know, believe what the Bible says and you can, you, can, you can have some sort of, you can have different relations with your colleagues and you might wish, things like that. You might not, there might be issues too at work about promotion, things like that. And, and so there, there are factors in there where you aren't as maybe well off as you would be if you didn't have, have a strong confession. Uh, and and we, can, we can be also realizing that the church is bigger than just what's happening here uh, in this place, in this country. And so when our brothers and sisters in places like the Sudan and China in the Middle East are suffering, then we're suffering along with them. If you bring in what's happening in, in uh, verse 8 there, not just you know, the uh, congregational-wide, but broaden it up so that we are actually praying for and supporting uh, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world as much as, as much, with as much as what we're given, realizing that we've all been baptized uh, into the same, same church, belong to the same Lord. You know, the, the body and blood that we receive here every week is the same body and blood that's on altars in Russia, in the Sudan, in Africa, in Europe, throughout the world. So we're all together as one church. Uh, and so when, when, one part of, when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. Uh, I think Paul, Paul has that in 1 Corinthians. So, yeah. Go ahead. I'm wondering, do you think this is an, a place where, where Peter is equating Christ with, uh, with Yahweh in the Old Testament and uh, uh, indicating Christ's divinity here? Yeah, I, I would definitely say that he's, he's continuing here. For some reason, I think the NIV ends the quote there and doesn't really show the, show the connection, but uh, in the NIV you have set apart, set apart Christ as Lord. Now, the word as isn't in there, and I would translate it, uh, sanctify Christ, that is, the Lord. And then the Lord then obviously draws back in here with, with uh, Isaiah 8.13, which is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, uh, the, the same Lord who is, the same God who was at work in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, that, that is a pretty strong uh, affirmation of Jesus' divinity, his his Godhood there. Well, we're at 11 o'clock, so we'll conclude with prayer and pick it up next week. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. 